Hey friends, this is Andy Storch, and I'm excited to announce that we are bringing the Talent Development Think Tank Conference back on February 22nd and 23rd in Sonoma, California. Yes, you might remember we hosted this conference for the first time in January 2020, and it was a huge hit with everyone telling us it was the best conference they ever attended. And of course, we were looking forward to running it again in 2021 until the pandemic hit. That's when I launched the Talent Development Think Tank membership community, and that's been going strong since May of 2020. But I know how valuable it is to get people together in person, and that's why we are excited to be bringing the conference back again on February 22nd and 23rd in Sonoma, California. I'm committed to making this a highly engaging and interactive event where you can connect, learn, and grow together with other talent development professionals. This is going to be the best event out there in talent development, and I would love to see you there. If you want to find more information and get your tickets today, the website is tdtt.us conference. That's tdtt.us slash conference. I hope to see you there. Welcome to the Talent Development Hot Seat with your host, Andy Storch. The show is dedicated to helping you develop the most important part of your organization, the people. If you are in HR or talent development, or you just want to learn how to get the best out of your people, then you are in the right place. Each week, Andy shares interviews with talent development professionals, thought leaders, and experts to share best practices, learn about the latest trends, and find out what has been successful in the world of talent development. This podcast is designed to give you what you need to be successful in the world of talent development. Now, here's your host, Andy Storch. Welcome back to another episode of the Talent Development Hot Seat. I am your host, Andy Storch, and I'm excited that you are joining me for another fantastic conversation. Today, we're talking about a really important topic that is impacting everybody across the working world, and that's burnout and wellness. In fact, we're seeing and hearing that while productivity and engagement may have gone up under the COVID-19 pandemic, people are working more hours than ever and burnout is becoming more prevalent than ever. And it's not just because the number of hours worked, it's because of all kinds of different factors, many of them as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic and people working remotely, taking less time off, taking on more pressures, communicating less, kids being at home, all kinds of different factors. And in fact, women are adversely more affected by this than men. And we go into all of that in this interview My guest today is an expert in this subject. Her name is Leah Weiss. She's a PhD, and she's created the perennially waitlisted course, Leading with Mindfulness and Compassion, at the Stanford Graduate School of Business, where she is on the faculty for Stanford Business School's LEAD program. She's a principal teacher and a founding faculty member of Stanford's Compassion Cultivation Program, conceived by the Dalai Lama, and is on faculty for Space Center Houston's Human Performance Accelerator Lab. In 2019, Leah co-founded Skylight, a company that specializes on data-driven, scalable solutions to team health. Dr. Weiss's first book, How We Work, Live Your Purpose, Reclaim Your Sanity, and Embrace the Daily Grind, focuses on compassion and resilient leadership through research-backed techniques. Her work guides the mental health and well-being strategies of over 85 organizations, including the Mayo Clinic and Stanford Children's Hospital. And her work has been covered by news outlets around the world, including the BBC, New York Times, TED, the Financial Times, Harvard Business Review, and more. And you can hear her conversations with world-renowned thought leaders and her Surgeon General Surgeon sister in her podcast, Grand Rounds. And in this interview, we talk a lot about mindfulness. We talk about burnout, what burnout is, how it's affecting so many people and why. We talk about resilience and how to develop that. We talk about how organizations can support their employees in avoiding burnout and what leaders can do to help support employees in avoiding burnout. So if this is a topic that you've been interested in that you feel like is impacting people in your organization or you work with people who have been affected by burnout, then make sure you stay tuned here. You get your notepad and your note and your pen ready or your notes app ready to take some notes. By the way, Leah also spoke recently inside the Talent Development Think Tank community. We have a live call every Wednesday. We bring in a lot of guest speakers and we had Leah as a speaker already and I knew this was a hot topic, but I did not realize how popular it would be and how much it would resonate with people, not just with them 
thinking about how do we help our employees with burnout, but how it resonated with everyone in the community in their own work and how they've also been affected by this. The conversation was amazing on that call. And so I was looking forward to getting Leah on here to share some of her lessons, some of her research, and some content that I know will help and inspire you because I know you are trying to make the world a better place and try to avoid burnout and create a better life for yourself as well. So without further ado, here is my interview with Leah Weiss about burnout and wellness. Enjoy. Hey, Leah, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad that you're here and I'm excited to get into this discussion about wellness and burnout because it's been such a hot topic around the talent development world. And when you and I were introduced and then we chatted first on Zoom, I don't know, a couple of months ago, whenever it was, I knew this was going to be something that would resonate with a lot of people. And we had you come speak in the talent development think tank community already. So I got a chance to hear a lot of your expertise and, and hear some of the questions that came up and see how it resonated so much with some of our members who initially, I think, came to talk about how do I help my employees with their burnout? And then came to a lot of realization about their own challenges and burnout as well. So I think that was a really powerful call. And I'm excited to bring that to our listeners today. Um, before we get into all of that, I'd love to just to start a, bit, a little bit of background, who you are, what you do, and kind of how you got to where you are today. Sure. It's always, a, a, I feel like, especially the last few months, these questions of like, who are you and what do you do? They become who really existentially loaded. Who am yeah. I? Actually? Well, didn't you just tell um, me right before we started recording, you have a good friend who's an identity professor. Maybe you can ask him. He can help you with exactly. your, your identity. I, or, or I could ask some of the Buddhist studies professors I'm, I'm friends with from grad school and they'll tell me not self, no one, and then I won't worry about it anymore. <laughs> That's right. Are you anybody? Or are you just like part of the world? I mean, there's there's a whole bit of all the kinds of different ways we could go with this conversation. We really could. We really could, which is part of what I love about that, that you're willing to go any of those ways. I can go anywhere. Is, That's right. Yeah. Flexibility. Which is, which is why I think you've assembled such a, a creative and interesting community. Um so um, what will I say that's relevant? I'm, um, I started out studying um, and really with this question beyond studying about what makes us resilient, it became my area of inquiry as an undergrad when I lost a very close friend um, who was struggling um, with his mental health who died by suicide. And I really have... Um, been asking similar questions my whole life because I just, I feel like there's always more to learn um, in these topics like resilience and mindfulness and compassion. I spent most of my twenties in and out of long meditation retreats, hundred days, six months. And then I'd wow. go back to grad school and study uh, how do you, what's the neuroscience of mindfulness and then go do a retreat and try to really dive into how do you practice it in my area of focus has always kind of straddled clinical work and education um, with the practical questions of like, how do we teach and learn these skills um, in the places we need them? I worked uh, after grad school or not quite after I was writing my dissertation too at the time, which was bad news. Um, I went back to the Stanford to work in the Compassion Center and set up their teacher training program, started teaching in parallel to that at the business school and developed my program for compassionate leadership in that context. And, um, and had three kids, all very close in age, which like very much informs my interest in this um, burnout and like high impact, low time kinds of solutions, because while retreat life was great, that's um, not the life I'm living now, other than in the sense of like, you know, at times quarantine, but not like hours and days and weeks and months of undisrupted time to contemplate. It's like, what's the mindset hack I can do on the fly with kids barging in during the meetings, all the things that I think probably a lot of you are also navigating. Um, and I guess the last thing I'll say to con give context is, um, a couple of years ago, one of my former superstar MBA students came uh, back to me and was really interested in this topic of burnout. And she came for an informational interview because she knew I had been working on this topic for years. And we both converged on um, our approach 
um, what she had seen in the consulting post Stanford MBA cohort of just massive burnout, totally um, ill-prepared organizational response and her desire to work on that problem and, and my desire to move past individual solutions um, in this space. So that's what I've been doing the last few years. Wow. I, I knew you had done a lot of research into this topic. I didn't know that you had been, you know, gone so extensively into meditation and mindfulness and wellness going, did you say 100 day or six month retreats? Cause six month is not a retreat. That's like a living. That's like a lifestyle. <laughs> <laughs> My husband also did these and he was just joking with someone who was asking us about this recently, um, you know, like, how has that worked out life-wise for you? He's like, well, I kind of did my retirement before I did my work. It's, right. it's a little bit backwards how most people think about their lives in a yeah. way. It's a learning uh, experience. I, yeah. It's very interesting to me as someone who is, I'm big into meditation and mindfulness. And I say that, I say I'm big into relative to most people in the corporate space because I meditate 10 minutes every day and I've done it every day for about five years and it's made a big impact for me, it's changed my life. I find, you know, I have a lot more patience. I'm a lot more mindful, especially with my children, but that seems like nothing compared to what you've done. Not that mindfulness is a competition, right? But, but I've not. often, it's not, <laughs> I'm more mindful than you. But, you know, I've thought about it a lot that like, yes, I meditate every day, but only for 10 minutes. I know one day I need to go to like a seven day retreat or something. And, and actually the thought of that scares me because I know my mind runs wild and I'm afraid I'll be bored or, you know, won't be able to handle it. You've done much longer than that. You know, what do you say to people that have even, haven't even tried meditation at all and are just kind of scared of even like trying it? I don't, I won't know how to do it or I won't be able to sit still or that kind of thing. I say, give up. You're so far behind. Why bother? Because Andy is so far ahead of you now. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Actually, as we record this, I've meditated 499 days in a row. So tomorrow, big day. Anyway, go on. Big day. See, right? How are we going to compete with people who've got their headspace and calm streaks up in the hundreds? It's like That's getting right. your Peloton now. Like, That's what do right. you do? There's people who have thousands of rides. You know, I think it's, it's interesting. I'm going to start with the opposite perspective, which is like, there's lots of people who have meditated for years and years and are really kind of seem to still have low emotional intelligence and be pretty painful to be around. So there's not necessarily a direct correlation with quantity and impact it has in life. And I would go out on limb to wager, um, you know, we've hung out a few times now. And, you know, I think someone like you who maybe you're meditating 10 minutes a day, but you're also paying attention to your mindset the mm. other 23 hours of the day, then Definitely. you can see a lot more traction than someone who's meditating an hour or two hours a day, but the other 22 hours, they're just on autopilot and they're not thinking about how do I bring my attention, my awareness, my compassion into challenging conversations and my work life or my family life. You know, there's a, a long running joke in the kind of meditation community that the way to gauge how good someone's practice is, is to like go interview their family. Um, mm. Don't ask them because <laughs> our, our partners yeah. are going to, you know, our coworkers and partners, not, not that we have to be perfect, but are we approaching those things with, with the same intentionality? Um, yeah. That's my two cents on that. Right. Interesting. And yeah. And, and what is it doing for you? Because much like with learning, we talk a lot about learning and development on this podcast. It's the behavior change. It's the impact. It's the value at the end of the day. It's not the, oh, how many minutes or how many days in a row did you meditate? We're joking about the competition. Obviously it's not, but what are you trying to gain from that? Are you trying to be more mindful? Are you trying to be more patient? Do you want to kind of limit or, or reduce the stress and anxiety in your life? And I think a lot of people have found that meditation helps them a lot with that, right? I think it has for me, uh, but it's also different for everybody as you point out too. Yeah. And I think for those who haven't started, you know, there's a lot of hype about meditation, which I think has a lot of positive things. Like it's much more normalized to practice and talk about it. And there's more resources available than there were 10 years ago and Definitely. so on. Um, I think it can also kind of come across as a bit of a like, 
tyranny that um, as though there's only one way to do this. And, you know, there's so many different kinds of natural meditation that someone might not resonate with sitting with their eyes closed. Maybe they haven't gotten good instructions. Maybe that's just not what they want to do, but they have a strong prayer life or they garden or Mm. they exercise. They do a million other things, arts, like there's so many ways to bring what the point of practice is of, of the intentional use of attention, grounding ourselves in purpose, working yeah. on our um, alignment with values and ethics. And there's so many ways to do that. So I get a bit nervous. I think one of the downsides of how excited uh, folks can be about meditation is it can, people can get very myopic, like the version of meditation, this particular breath or mantra practice I did that changed my life is what everybody else should do. It's like, no, everybody, it's like saying if I eat a specific diet, that that's the diet for everyone. No, everyone should find their diet that makes sense for them, their body, their life, rather than be like a know-it-all about exactly what other people should do. That's That's been, so in the learning and development space, this is one of my big critiques too, that I think, you know, A, apps are not going to solve this kind of self-awareness, bigger picture of how do we practice as individuals and communities. Their adherence rates fall off a cliff after weeks, if um, certainly by 30 days, less than 5% of people are using them. So if your organization's approach to this is like, oh, no worries, we subscribe to X, Y, or Z app, it's like, that's probably not really going to do the trick. But beyond that, it doesn't have to be meditation. Yeah. And it's, it's a tool like all the other things you mentioned at the end of the day, the goal, whatever, whatever you choose to do, prayer, gardening, exercise that using an app like calm, which I use or headspace is, is to breathe, slow down, maybe clear your mind if you can, and just get away from work and the constant emails and, and pings and all the stuff that's coming at us just to give our brain a little bit of a rest, right? Like I do 10 minutes a day of meditation. I also practice yoga every week and I love it. And I think one of the reasons I love it is because I'm not doing anything else. I don't have my phone with me, right? I'm not getting responding to text messages or you know, preparing for a podcast interview or whatever it may be. I'm just breathing and stretching and you know, kind of in my own little world. And, and I love having that time. I love that. And I think integration is just such an important thing to focus on as well as interviewing a COO of a healthcare organization this morning and asking him about his practices. And one of the ones he mentioned was just like, I try not to spend my commute checked out listening to whatever um, thing to just, yeah. And like just finding these little moments, um, you know, I think can go a long way. It to to kind of get us to question our desire to optimize and produce every second of every day, which is you know this like collective hysteria that is useless, but we believe in. Right, and I get caught up in that as well, and that me leads me into our topic, which is burnout. Right, and as we look at where we are in the working world, you and I record this in May 2021. You know, we're. 15 months or so into the, the COVID-19 pandemic and lockdown and working remotely. And we're starting to come out in many ways, but work has, has completely changed. And a lot of companies went from being in the office to working remotely, working virtually. And I think that, I think many companies found almost to their surprise that productivity and engagement actually went up throughout a lot of this time, right? People are working harder and longer than ever so forget that whole thing of like, oh, we can't trust our employees that they're not in the office. In fact, they're actually working more. They're not spending any time at the water cooler chatting with each other, right? They're just working the whole time. But the flip side of that is we're hearing that burnout is becoming more and more prevalent for employees across every industry, every type of company. So I want to kind of start with a like definition of what you're seeing and hearing, like what is burnout and why, why is this happening? Why is this such a popular topic these days? So I think the what is burnout, I always like to defer to the World Health Organization definition of it, burnout being comprised of these three components, emotional exhaustion, dehumanization, and reduced personal efficacy. The emotional exhaustion, I feel like is the most self-explanatory of the three. 
um, the depersonalization, it, it can come in both flavors of depersonalizing folks around us in workplaces, depersonalizing ourselves when we're being a to-do list ninja, we're not really being aware of our own humanity, often even our own basic physical needs, getting up and stretching and moving and nourishing our bodies and so forth, even to like a teeny reasonable amount. How many people do we talk to these days are like, I haven't had a, a bio break in six hours. So you're like, that's not healthy, right. um, but, I, but you're getting this stuff done. And I think the, you know, and, and the dehumanization of others, this leads to so many problems that, you know, we see someone as their role, so-and-so in HR and, or so-and-so the engineer or whatever role. And we forget that they're a person with a context and COVID has pushed all of this, right? That like it, it in some ways took us back to shared common humanity in a way that was uh, we had to acknowledge that people had families and struggles with mental health and loneliness and all kinds of things going on that typically we would just compartmentalize. Um, and then the reduced personal efficacy is a really tricky one because we start feeling like we can't impact our environment. Our feelings don't matter. Our solutions don't matter. This broken system can't be changed. Cynicism goes up, like all of those components. Um, so, you know, burnout since the pandemic is massive. 2.5 to 3 million women have left the workforce in this country alone. Um, women are twice as likely as men to say they just can't possibly do it all, um, all being the additional 20 hours of work and um, that they're doing for supporting families and loved ones over their uh, male counterparts, not to make this into you know, a, a competition between genders, but I think there's, we need to be realistic if we're talking about workplaces and who's at really high risk right now that some of our shared socialization around expectations um, for who's carrying weight in the home life is yeah. part of the burden that is breaking people. COVID-19 pandemic and 2020 changed everything in business and talent development. Almost overnight, companies were forced to figure out how to engage their employees remotely and run their development programs virtually. Luckily, Advantage Performance Group has been running a webinar series and releasing free resources throughout the last year and beyond. Advantage is a proud sponsor of the Talent Development Hot Seat, known for creating, learning, and consulting solutions that equip individuals, teams, and organizations to be the best at what they do. Advantage helps leaders lead, sellers sell, and businesses flourish. To join our webinar series and find more of our free resources, just head on over to AdvantagePerformance.com. That's AdvantagePerformance.com. I was going to ask, is that, is that because, you know, in this day and age, um, we'll say the millennial generation, right, has the highest percentage ever, of course, of two-earner household, a two-earner household, and there's been much, a big movement towards, you know, quote, equality, but statistically, the, the woman, the wife, the mother, whatever has been is still more likely to take on more of the housework and the child care responsibilities. And so is that the main reason why women are more likely to experience burnout? One of them. Okay. Um, it's an important one. I mean, this is one that Lean In and McKinsey have really focused their research on of like really cataloging the gender differentials um, of, of work outside of the workplace and how that impacts women's professional advancement. I think the other one that's really coming home to roost in the context of the pandemic is, you know, you and I both have young kids. Like, Someone's got to watch the kids. Yep. If there's two earners in the household, the gender pay disparities, um, if the women are earning less, there's a simple math to be done and yep. women are more likely to be earning less, right? We know that across the board, that's research that's been well right. established. So it's like combining the socialization and who tends to do what with the gender pay disparities. Um, and then there's, you know, other components too, when you start, when we, we factor race and women of color are more likely still. And I think, you know, there's complexities that we need to think about of like, how many areas in your life are you experiencing friction in, um, you know, whether that's managing uh, unconscious bias and microaggressions in your team meetings, whether that's being more likely to care for your family, 
um, whether that's um, earning less than your counterparts or having less opportunities. Like all, I think the thing that I want to say most clearly is burnout isn't just hours worked. One of the big precipitants is moral injury or unfairness in our workplace lives. So when we perceive we're earning less, not being valued as much, that does more damage to precipitate burnout than working more hours. That that people, it's a misperception that it's about hours worked alone. Yeah, it's just like, oh, there are people are working too many hours. If you just reduce your hours, then, which is hard to do as it is, like a lot of people have a lot of work to do, but it's not just about that. It's, it's unfairness. People feel like they're not being really valued or rewarded or recognized for the work they're doing. Something you also talked about, which I never thought about in the community call that we did a few weeks ago was this connection to purpose as well, where people either feel like they have no real purpose or why behind the work they're doing or even too much, right? Too much passion and purpose for the work they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. The purpose part of this is really fascinating that so on one end of the spectrum, there's kind of the bore out, like my job is boring. I don't care about it. I'm spending all of my time there. And that there. meaninglessness like grates, right? And then on the other end, I'm, you know, you see this in any sector, but let's take healthcare as an example. You care so much or nonprofit work that you're much more likely to self-sacrifice even kind of basic um, what you need to sustain yourself. And your there's boss, a collective- Your boss tells you to take a day off and you're like, no, 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 I'm coming to work because I care so much about this. I care so much. And the leaders, you know, in these kinds of contexts, um, let's, let's, you know, a, a, a social good organization, a mission-driven organization, they're setting the precedent that if you care, if you're hardcore, if you really belong here working on this problem, you know, this is a classic Elon Muskism, like- mm. Of course, you should all be working over 100 hours a week. If you don't think that the problem we're solving is important enough to give beyond blood, sweat, and tears, but your fundamental well-being, then you don't belong here and we'll replace you with someone who's more hardcore. Like that mm. ethos is, if you're in an organization like that, is very difficult to swim upstream against. That's fascinating, right? And and maybe some people care, they, they care so much that that drives them. Like I'm thinking of Elon Musk, the iconic founder of Tesla and SpaceX, who famously like sleeps at the office half the time because he works nonstop. He of course stands to make billions of dollars and, and is probably not even driven by that. He wants to change the world. His purpose is so strong, right? But for other people, maybe their, their drive is so strong, but it just outpaces them and they, they can't handle it and it becomes overwhelming, right? Is that what's, what's happening for a lot of people? I think that in the expectation, um, it, it's, it's, they grate away at you. And, you know, I just, it's, and this comes out in small ways. Like I, um, you know, when we get the invitation for the meeting that, or the conversation or the call or the whatever that conflicts with our family's dinner hour, you know, do it once because you don't want to say no. Um, but if you start doing that every night, the implications for your relationships, your social kind of resilience gets eroded. And some workplaces, people feel profoundly uncomfortable to speak up and say like, no, I need to protect that hour that's really important to my family's functioning, especially during a pandemic when there's so much going on. And I think yeah. this is the stuff that really exhausts people when we go out and interview them. It's the unfairness, it's impositions on the things they need to sustain themselves. And they're feeling like they can't speak up about it because there's a, a culture or a pressure or they just don't know how and they're afraid. Right. Yeah. So I, I want to get to how we address that. And, and, you know, going back to what you were talking about with mindfulness and, you know, my own approach to mindfulness, not just about meditation, it's really analyzing everything I'm doing and thinking and thinking about, you know, is this, is what I'm doing helping me achieve my goals? Does it meet with my values and purpose of being with my family or whatever it is and helps me make those trade-offs and prioritize how I spend my time and set boundaries, uh, which I think a lot of people can stand to do. And I wrote about that. It's one of the big reasons I, why I wrote my book, Own Your Career, Own Your Life. I want people to take more ownership of their career, be honest about what they want to achieve and, and take the right actions towards that. But I may have probably discounted or not really given enough credit to the fact that a lot of people feel trapped. They feel like 
they can't raise that conversation. They can't set those boundaries. They're scared of what might happen if they say to their boss, like, no, I can't work. I'm not going to work through dinner or I'm not going to work these long hours anymore, or I don't want to do this type of work anymore because they don't know what would happen otherwise. You know, what advice do you give for people in those situations or, or how do we help our employees set some of those boundaries so that they, you know, they can spend time with their family. They don't completely burn out of the work they're doing. Well, I love your frame of this question. And I think, you know, the, what you're talking about in, in terms of knowing yourself so you can own components of your life that you otherwise never would be able to is the foundation. We have to do that work. Um, I think at the organizational level where I've come with this is um, to say, we need to create structures that allow for things like self-awareness and autonomy and stru structured rest and work um, and at the team level. So it's not putting the onus on each individual to have to swim upstream amidst power dynamics and who knows what other dynamics to advocate for themselves that you're putting, you're reconstructing how a team operates. And part of what it needs to do is ask itself, create space for these practice fields and meta discussions about what are our assumptions about how we're working, how we're carving out time, um, what kind of support and flexibility we need, um, what let's get the needs on the table, the assumptions on the table and do it as a group as opposed to each individual. And I think when I've been working in organizations, putting that team-based process in front of people, the, the opportunity for change is so much higher because it's not putting that onus on each individual to have to manage that. I mean, ultimately they have to speak up in these conversations for sure. But I think taking it on um, as part of how we construct what a manager does, how individual contributors can be good teammates, it means making sure to have um, forum for these conversations and really listen to one another and problem solve for your collective as well as your individual best interest. Yeah, so important. And, and it, it's kind of both sides are responsible, right? People need to be willing to stand up for their own lives and mental health, but we need organizations that can take some of that pressure off and communicate and show empathy and ask people, meet people where they are and give them a break every now and then and make sure they know that, hey, you don't have to work through dinner if you don't want to, or you know, whatever it is that it's about the boss setting the right expectations. This leads me to another thing I wanted to ask you about. We, we defined and talked about burnout. We're kind of moving to this, what's the solution? And I know it's complicated, but you also talk a lot about resilience. And that's something I'm big on as well. You know, what is resilience? What does that mean? And how do we develop more resilience? Yeah, to connect these up together. Um, and, and there's a reason why I'm going to bridge these two topics. So one of the things we've been finding as I'm surveying folks and organizations I'm, I'm working with, there people are often very high on the self-awareness. They know their triggers, they know their values, they know their needs. And then simultaneously very low on feeling like there's mutual awareness in the team of triggers, values, needs, or the organization um, doesn't have uh, support for these kinds of uh, system level discovery, let's say. Um, so this mismatch between people who are high in emotional intelligence and self-knowledge and feel like they're struggling interpersonally to know how to do this together um, brings me to how I would talk about resilience. So often, if you look at like the American Psychological Association, the definitions of, of resilience come in the form of how do individuals respond to adversity? How do they, you know, bounce back, learn from post-traumatic growth, um, and so forth? How do they make sense of and process adversity so that they can move forward um, in their lives? And that individualistic take on resilience, I think in organizational life just isn't enough. And so if you look at people like Dr. Christina Maslach, who's an expert in organizational burnout, she uses this metaphor of um, trying to solve at the individual level um, how people are responding to adversity is like 
blaming a cucumber in a vinegar barrel for becoming a pickle. We have to look at the system together. Um, and so I think I am increasingly interested in what does that mean? I've been talking about at the team level. It's not enough to know what my tuning trigger needs, purpose, values. It's pretty not that helpful. <laughs> it's not going to get me anywhere if I can't talk to the people I spend the majority of my time with about it and mutually know each other's. Um, so, so I would say resilience then is about how do we respond to adversity and acknowledge differences in context and need, personality, traits, all of that. I, <laughs> I love this analogy about blaming a cucumber and a barrel of vinegar for becoming a pickle. That's definitely not one I've heard about before, but the idea that we're often shaped by our environment, everybody doing things differently, and we can't just jump to conclusions about a certain situation. We really, really got to take the whole thing into account and have a conversation about, you know, what's that situation look like and how do we address that specifically? Yeah. And if people will want different things, I mean, I can give a personal example, like my, um, we just lost my mother-in-law a few yeah. days ago and, um, you know, it's been really interesting to see how, um, the people who I share that with, you know, well, oh, you don't have to be here in this meeting or don't have to do this thing. And, you know, I'm like, I've, you know, I don't say this, but what I'm often thinking is like, I've made my own decisions as a grown up about yeah. what I want to do with my calendar this week. Right. And, um, you know, I get and understand this like kind of guilt or, um, taking kind of crossing over the net to say, um, what I would want, maybe I wouldn't want to be in this conversation right now, or I'm uncomfortable and assuming that's what the other person is feeling. And I think, you know, we talk about this, this is like a classic thing with compassionate organizations research is like someone's going through, you know, a health issue or family grief, um, whatever kind of stressor, you can't assume that what they need by way of support is the same across all people. So what a compassionate organization does is have an ability to be flexible and responsive to the needs of that particular person. Um, if they want, one person might want leave while another person wants additional responsibility. You can't yeah. assume. Because they, they may want to dive into some more work that they care about and not be sitting at home stewing in their loss, whatever it may be, right? However they consider it, right? Everybody's going to react differently. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And so I think that becomes a really important part of this equation too, and comes back to, you know, the work in your book about knowing ourselves. Um, it's not always a straightforward answer to like, what do I need right now, especially in a time of stress and distress. And that is a lot of work to be able to get to that clarity. And then it's only with that clarity, can we communicate it to others and, and get the support. Um, there's a, a quote I read on Adam Grant's uh, Facebook a couple of years ago that stuck with me. He kind of redacted some research he'd done into this one line that was 80% of helping behavior is precipitated by asking for help, but we don't ask. Hmm. And then I would add on to that. And we have to ask for the help we want, not just right. help me, which leaves open to like what the other person would want. And yeah. <laughs> Well, and, and leaders, managers can do a much better job of asking employees and people, what help do you need, right? And that opens it up because a lot of people are afraid to ask for help. It makes them look weak or they don't want to put other people out. But when you open it up and make it easier to them, you know, what help do you need? How can I help you? Then it might make it easier for people to say, well, you know, I'm actually struggling with this situation and I could use a little bit of help. So I think, you know, again, both sides coming together. And speaking of that, we're talking a lot about how employees end up being burnt out. And there's, there's a lot of other things that go into that, right? What can organizations do? What can companies do now to help employees avoid that burnout to really create a, you know, more wellness for our employees? Yeah. I, mean, I love the example you just gave. And actually early in the pandemic, Lean In did a survey of how many people were being asked by their organizations, how they were and what they needed. 
And I forget what the like data on that was, but way less people than you expect were being asked. And just the yeah. act of being asked made them feel cared for. Um, so I think, you know, not, you, we can't overlook these very practical questions um, about what are we doing to get information about what people want, what people need. I know a lot of folks are thinking right now about the mismatch between the benefits that organizations are set up to offer and the benefits that would actually be helpful in a world where gyms and you know office-based things are not <laughs> doing it for anyone. Um, I think asking a lot of questions is important, but the tricky part here is people are, a lot of folks are experiencing survey fatigue, right? And like, there's so many organizations that, um, that I work with that come to me and say things like, I'm drowning in data. My people are burned out. They're struggling in all sorts of ways, but the so what and what do we do now based on this data is not immediately clear. So. I think that is a place where like the assessment industry is billions of dollars. Um, so they're doing really well with the in information gathering component, but then converting that into what do we have? Um, so I'll tell you where I've been focused is I think there's a problem that we try to solve these issues at the individual level. And the research is very clear that organizations who take individualistic approaches to wellness, don't meet their goals, either the organizational KPIs or the well-being goals. So we're failing, we're spending billions of dollars and failing. And so I think it's time to innovate and think about what can we do at the team level? What can we do at the interaction level um, that gets to some of these conversations that aren't being had, the modeling of leaders, the perceptions um, that people have of their workplaces then translating into action. So I'd love to see in the next, if the last 10 years have focused on collecting wellness data, let's focus on like really um, being thoughtful and systematic about what the approaches we take look like to building community, to building collective awareness, to building autonomy and structured rest. And then we might get more resilience as a result. Yeah, so many great things that we can do there and organizations can be doing. We talk about the impact of people rem working remotely. And we talked about uh, you know, how this has changed, people working a lot more one of the other things that I learned from when we had our community call too is, you know, there's a lot of conversation about working parents and all the other, all the stresses that come from working more and managing kids at home a lot of times and, and that sort of thing. The flip side that I think is not talked about very much, and I heard members in our community, you know, chattering about when we had our call is people that live alone, right? Single living on your own throughout this pandemic and lockdown, not really being able to interact with people in person can take a toll because humans are social creatures and we're kind of meant to be living together and be with each other. And, you know, Zoom is great. I love it. But a lot of times people have suffered, you know, from depression and anxiety and all kinds of mental health issues because they're just not around other people. And there's, I don't know if there's much, I'm curious, is there anything that, that companies can even do to help people with that sort of thing? Yeah, it's such an important area you're flagging. And, you know, our Surgeon General wrote a book about the importance of human connection in loneliness as a health issue. Um, it's a great book, which I highly recommend, called Together um, by Vivek Murthy. And um, I think some of what we need to acknowledge is the impact of loneliness that he uses uh, the um, research to frame this by saying it's equivalent, being socially isolated is equivalent to smoking 10 cigarettes a day on the health of the isolated person. Um, it's huge. And from an organizational perspective, I think some of the things can be um, around if you're working remotely or in person in a just, you know, covered up kind of way, the um, organic social interactions that we're used to to create that sense of community aren't available to us. So we have to, if we're, if we're gonna be skewed towards being tactical all the time and um, 
we need to then carve out opportunities to have a check-in with our team and seek other people out and find out how they're doing. Um, you have to make those times because they're not going to happen organically at the coffee pot or the water cooler anymore. Um, and we also need to know that that's going to heighten the risk for mental illness um, and create, you know, very real issues for health and, and ability to focus on work and so forth. We are social creatures. We are. Yeah. And so I want to reinforce what we've already talked about, the importance of empathy of communication, of checking in. It's so important and encouraging the managers in our organizations to be checking in with people still, you know, as there's still so much uncertainty out there. Before we close out, anything else you want to add that is important for, especially people in talent development to be thinking about to help our employees, you know, through these challenging times and, and keep, you know, improve wellness in their organizations? Yeah, I think we need to work together on breaking down the silos of mental health, well-being, um, performance. They're not separate things, but they often get separate budgets, separate uh, people. And I think that if we can understand that an upside of this really challenging year we've all been facing is that we are acknowledging mental health is so important. Let's not get, let that insight go as um, things transition uh, in the upcoming months. Um, and we know that the younger generations are much more focused on and expect more by way of mental health um, support conversation and so forth in their workplaces. So I think there's a lot of very practical reasons to continue doing that. And if we destigmatize together, um, offer resources, have conversations, I've been hearing about a lot more leaders talking about their own struggles with mental health. Um, I think that normalization is so important um, and, and humanizes the fact that we can struggle, we can support each other, um, and people don't need to hide out feeling ashamed and even more isolated. Um, and, and now is the time that we really can continue doing this work. I think that would be one of the kind of, um, uh, you know, so creating, what does that mean at a practical level? Finding leadership, executive sponsorship to step up in meaningful ways and talk personally in an organization goes a very long way if that's not already happening. Um, making sure that you're resourcing in ways that match with what people need. Make sure your managers understand the basics of burnout and how to recognize it in their employees. It's very difficult to self-assess. So managers, just like we need people who can operate the defibrillator in an office, if someone is a cardiac event, we need to be able to recognize that the early stages of burnout look like workaholism. So don't be celebrating if you have people on your team that are emailing you at midnight and again at 5 a.m. It's your job to understand, to educate your leaders, your managers, because they are the ones who are going to pick up on early signs, be able to support and help before these problems become extreme and, and do more damage. Mm, I like that, you know, managers being able to, to recognize that and be able to say something, do something, you know, almost the same as people going and getting certified in CPR and being able to save lives that way. Uh, just as important to be able to recognize mental health issues and be able to raise concerns and ask questions and show empathy and, and be able to help people that are on their way to burnout. Leah, this has been fantastic. Uh, so much great information here. I've got a few more questions for you to ask in the bonus round, but for those of us listening now, for people that want to get in touch with you, maybe follow you along, do some work with you, where's the best place for them to go? I would recommend LinkedIn. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn. I'm pretty active there and I love keeping in touch with folks. Um, so yeah, reach out to me there. Awesome. Well, we are both very active on LinkedIn. So if you're not, make sure you connect, follow both of us, uh, Leah and I on LinkedIn. We'll put a link to Leah's LinkedIn profile in the show notes. And Leah, thank you so much again for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. All right, that's going to do it for my interview with Leah Weiss, all about burnout and wellness. I hope that you got some value from that interview. If you did, reach out, let me know, connect with Leah on LinkedIn, let her know as well. And if you want more, I also recorded some bonus Q&A with Leah 
for our members-only podcast inside the Talent Development Think Tank. I ask Leah about her greatest career accomplishment, her biggest mistake and failure, and what she learned from it, uh, books that she recommends, a trend she's following in talent development, and her advice for those of us in talent development who want to accelerate our career success. It's a great bonus conversation. It's available only to our members inside the Talent Development Think Tank community. Just one of the many benefits that you will get when you come join us in the Think Tank community. So if you're not a member, come check us out. Our website is tdtt.us. That's tdtt.us. You can take 10% off for being a podcast listener. When you join, whether as a trial or you go full on in, you can use code HOTSEAT, H-O-T-S-E-A-T, for 10% off. That's HOTSEAT, 10% off. When you go to tdtt.us, come join us. In addition to having a members-only podcast, we have a Slack channel for our over 90 active members. And we have a live call every Wednesday where we bring in guest speakers like Leah and others you've heard on this podcast. We do open forum calls. We do networking. If you are trying to avoid burnout, part of that is connecting with others. I think community is so important. It's why I created the Talent Development Think Tank community in 2020 to connect people, to bring people together because humans are social creatures. We need each other. We need community. We need support. We need communication. We need socialization. And if you're not getting enough of that at work, you're not getting enough of it from home. Do you have a community? Do you have people you can talk with on a regular basis who are going through similar things that you are, that you can learn with, that you can talk with, that you can be honest and authentic and vulnerable with? with. If you don't and you are passionate about talent development, please come join us in the Talent Development Think Tank community. I promise you, you will get tons of value from it. And if you don't, you can always leave. There are no commitments and there's no pressure to stay. Again, our website is tdtt.us. I'll see you inside. Thanks again for listening to the Talent Development Hot Seat. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to leave us a rating and review on iTunes to help other people find the show. And as always, you can find all of our episodes and tons of free resources on our website, talentdevelopmenthotseat.com. Thank you again. Take care.